Welcome back to Shadow on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Gene Lyons, and alongside me is my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And this is our Instacast episode where we share our quick takes on this week's episode of Game of Thrones. This week's episode was season eight, episode two, titled The Rightful Queen. Big D, what'd you think? Uh, You know, sometimes you don't know what's exactly good for you or what's for your own good. In the beginning, I found myself wishing. I said, this is so slow. I want to get somewhere because I knew the battle's coming. I kept checking the time to see how much time was left in the episode, hoping maybe are we going to get surprised? Are we going to get the battle? But by the end, I got to tell you, the show knew what was right for me. It knew what was better for me. And by the end, I'm really, really glad that we had this episode and that we didn't just run headlong into the battle. Some of the preview images that were released before episode two, you saw Jamie Lannister in front of what appeared to be a tribunal of sorts, and people were calling it the trial of Jamie Lannister. And I was really sitting in for some sort of a fiery back and forth. And when it wasn't happening, I was like, what's going on here? And when we set up the outline for the Instacast, we normally are like, okay, let's talk about the new facts that we learned. So I'm like, what are we going to get from this trial? Some new questions. And that's how we normally follow the podcast. And just like you, about halfway through, I just realized that all I want to talk about is the feelings that the show has managed to evoke. I don't give a shit about the facts. Yeah, I mean, once we opened up with the the trialer, Jamie in front of uh, Daenerys and and her her council in the in the uh, the Grand Hall, uh, I knew we were going to get through it pretty quick, and and they moved through that plot pretty pretty quickly. But then you know we got people going in and out of the crypts. We got people you know they're, they're trying to train some of the local folks. Davos is is feeding you know the the local hungry and trying to recruit them for the army. So I'm like, God, come on, please. Let's get there. Let's get there. Let's get there and hoping. But that would have been such a mistake because we've now built up how much. What was this episode 69 in the series? You have to make us emotionally connect with these characters again. And I think it accomplished that. And I'm really glad that the show just pushed me back and said, wait one more week. The biggest question I got between episodes one and two from people I run into on a daily basis was, you think we're going to get a battle in two? Or do you at least think some people are going to die? Can we get some deaths? Can we get things going? And I'm afraid that people are going to complain that this is another episode without real action. Mm. But I just have to focus on the fact that this is the last time we're going to see these characters together. These moments, every single one matter. And I get the feeling that the pain that's going to come after this will be immeasurable. We have to remember that scores of our favorite characters are going to be erased possibly in minutes. And, you know, everyone's got their office pools or their online pools, the death pools, like who's going to die? Who's going to get turned into a White Walker? Who's going to survive? Who's going to end up on the throne? And after watching these first two episodes, I feel like those pools are really stupid. (laughs) And and people got to remember, these characters that we all love, they're together in one place. Everyone that is killed is going to turn into a white so people were like, oh, what would traumatize you? You know, a white ghost or maybe like a white Hodor. You're going to get multiple whites. You might get a Tormund. You might get a, a Brienne of Tarth. You might get a Jamie White. There is going to be white versions of our favorite characters that we've loved for all of these seasons. So this episode set you up 
to just really just completely knock you down next week and everybody should be devastated. But I'll guarantee you that there's going to be a majority of people this week that do complain this was way too slow and a lot of filler because they just they can't control themselves. They, they don't have that impulse controlled much like I didn't. Aside from the emotional aspect of things and the fear of loss, this show also is doing a really impressive job of weaving in direct conversations with the audience in the dialogue that's going on. And we see it woven beautifully in different parts. You have Sam saying, think back to when we started as they're standing on the wall, the, the remainder of the night's watch looking out over the night. Tyrion, you know, strange, isn't it? Almost everyone here has fought the Starks. And now we're defending their castle. And all of these little moments and these buildup of histories are touching off that fact that we got between the conversation between Sam and Bran, where they are equating memories with humanity. And the show is basically telling us, like, this is what makes us all people is these shared memories that we have. And that's what's at stake here. It's not just like, Who's going to live? Who's going to die? But will the memory of all this survive? And there's so much of a meta connection going on there that it's hard not to feel anything. Uh, There was one connection I did not need. Uh, And uh, I felt seriously dirty watching Arya strip. It was the most uncomfortable I've been in a show that's had, uh, you know, you had Theon's penis cut off. People fed to hounds. You've had children murdered. You've had butcher boys run down. You've had every atrocity. You've had multiple rapes. And this, Macy Williams, she was 14 when season one started filming. We've watched her grow up. This is like your little niece. You know, that's at Thanksgiving. And then you find a sex tape with her online. It, I was, oh, I, I almost had to turn away. I immediately hopped on Google and I was like, how old is Macy Williams? And I was like, okay, she's 22. Arya as a character is 18. And I still felt weird watching it. And normally, you know, we had a sex scene between Cersei and Euron in the last episode. People like, why didn't we get to see it? Why is Lena Headey being a prude? What the fuck? And on this one, I was like, please don't show her boobs. Please, God, do not show any part of her body. (laughs) And I was like, and we got a little bit of butt. And I was like, I don't really even want to see that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, man. Just thank you, Game of Thrones, for not going there. You know when they have like the the parental warning that comes up before the episode? I took notice, and I don't know why. It said partial nudity. So when she starts to disrobe, I was much like you. I'm like, no, no, don't, don't turn around. No, don't, uh, don't. Oh, thank God she didn't. Thank God. I could have done with a little naked Gendry, but whatever. So let's get to the meat of things, Big D. Uh, We talked about our feelings about this episode, but there were a lot of major moments that we need to dive into really quickly today on the Instacast. And of course, on the deep dive, we'll get even deeper into them. And we talked about that trial of Jamie Lannister. I was very pleased that there was a reckoning for Jamie, that they at least made an attempt to say, you know, Sansa remembers, Danny remembers this treachery, because I think too many viewers view Jamie as like some sort of a hero. They give him a pass for all the awful things that he's done. And he says that they were all for his house or the family. They weren't. And Bran just calls him out with that. The things we do for love. He's <laughs> not telling anybody what happened, but Jamie knows he knows. Oh, and he gives him that look. He's like, fuck. So Jamie was looking at him like, okay, is anything else going to come out? Does anybody else know? Is this, is this a little finger moment? You know, where they come out and just stab me. But what I did like that we learned also in that in that moment that was was key, the Lannister army is not with Jamie. So all the questions of 
you know, is Cersei have something going on? What's Jamie's real motive? How are the Lannister are, you know, soldiers going to be accepted? Uh-uh. Cersei just cut Jamie loose, sent him up there, hoping probably that he would not make it out of this encounter with the new leadership. And later when we see Jamie with Bran in private, they can have a more frank conversation. And a lot of the conversations we had after episode one were about the nature of Bran, whose side is he on, what is he now? And he flat out says, he's like, I'm not Bran Stark anymore. If, if you hadn't thrown me out that window, you wouldn't be who you are, and I would still be Bran Stark. So Bran is much more objective than a lot of people give him credit for. He sees Jamie strictly as an asset in the fight. Also, little point. Security at Winterfell sucks. Like, I get that you're going to let Jamie live and fight. You're just going to let him walk around the godswood with a sword and leave him alone with Bran? Seems a little risky. Yeah, but at least they took it. They took it away from him at first. But yes, you and you could even see him when Jamie was walking up to Bran. He was kind of like looking over his shoulder. Like, is this an ambush? Am I about to get you know set up and strung up from the godswood? But Bran has a kind of a throwaway line where Jamie's asking about, Right now, you're going to forgive me because you need me fighting for the living. What about afterwards? And Bran says, how do you know there's going to be an afterwards? That's a big line that you should not take lightly. Bran might be telling us something. There might not be an after. I like that this episode actually showed us a lot of different characters, optimism or pessimism. And some of them were surprising, like Tyrion showing a degree of optimism at first, I was like, that's uncharacteristic. And I thought about it, I was like, no, you know what? In all these years, Tyrion's actually been quite an optimist, despite all of his factual thinking and all of his realism, he is quite optimistic. Yeah, and we have a next block that we're going to talk about questions for next episode. And I have something that's there, but it ties into exactly what you're saying right now. This optimism or change in it is a question I have. We see Bran for the first time sitting down with Tyrion. You've now got the intellect of Tyrion with the, the the mass data that Bran has. And a lot of times he's taking in this big data without context. Tyrion can offer context to most of that information. When Tyrion first discusses with Jaime, wouldn't father be, uh, what would father think if he knew we were here, going to die in Winterfell, defending the castle of the Starks? By the end, after he's had his powwow with Bran and he's sitting around in the circle drinking, He's suddenly optimistic, where he says, we might not die tonight. So I need to know what Bran and him talked about, that all of a sudden, he thinks that the ending is not guaranteed. This episode gave us a lot of one-on-one conversations, which is something that doesn't happen as often as it used to in Game of Thrones. A key one was between Sansa and Daenerys. They have a sit down. I think all of us were waiting for this conversation. These two powerful women sitting down, and having it out, whether it comes out peacefully or with conflict, and can they find common ground? And in that conversation, Daenerys reveals a truth that I think most of us overlooked, and I'm certainly guilty of that, which is we keep thinking that John's in her pocket, and she says, look, I'm here right now. I have the dragons. I have the Lannisters in a weakened position at King's Landing. If I were really just here to get the one thing I want in my life, the Iron Throne, I would be down there right now laying waste to King's Landing. And instead, I'm up here with John fighting his war. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know what, what Sansa's ultimate goal is. They seem to have found common ground. They're, they're entering into the fight for their lives, their fight for humanity. 
why is she really finding a sticking point with what will happen after what will be of the north what we that's irrelevant right now and she's smart everyone talks about how bright sansa is and she's a great tactician and that she's been leading men who have followed her and been successful why now it's so dumb the timing doesn't match there's there's no good outcome that can come from this it was a a confrontation you turned a good moment into one that's filled with strife i think a lot of it has to do with her background but there's also the possibility that game of thrones is showing us that sansa is the real version of what daenerys is pretending to be right so daenerys is I can be warm. I can I can bridge gaps. I can reach out to the opponent. I can compromise. But when I need to be, I can be ruthless. And you look, you turn around and you see in the same episode that Sansa is behaving much more in line with those characteristics. She's having that conversation with Daenerys. She's open-minded. And then she has her sticking point. Hey, it's great that we're all going to work together. What does this mean in the end? And you're like, wow, she's kind of cold. Like she's kind of calculated. But you see Theon show up and Sansa rushes to embrace him. That's real warmth. That's a real connection. And I wonder if Daenerys has that connection with anybody. Maybe Jorah, possibly Jon, maybe Miss Sandy. But I do see that they're like two sides of one coin. And it's a really interesting dynamic. I'm starting to come around on the Sansa character. and I never thought I would. So great job, Game of Thrones. Uh, for me, another big moment that, that you know really filled in a lot of the blanks for me. I did that rundown of what I thought the best strategy would be to defend Winterfell. We get the strategy revealed. We get everything laid out for us, and and I love the little bits that they've done. That's logical that we didn't need to waste time with. We've seen them working on the ramparts and the outer parts of the castle. What they've been doing now is they're putting little pieces of dragon glass and embedding them into the outer shell of Winterfell. So when the dead come trying to climb over, they're going to kill themselves. I just imagine. I'm just imagining them climbing over and bursting. Like, yeah, like bursting, oh, I didn't think about that. It'll be like fireworks. But they're also actually even building wooden hedgehogs. If you guys have ever seen Saving Private Ryan, it's those. They look like jacks. It's the um, the thing you throw with the balls and jacks. Uh, it's usually like an X formation out of steel, and it's meant to stop tanks in modern warfare. But they're embedding them with dragon glass as well. And we know now from the strategic conversation that that no one in the leadership role believes that they can defeat the army of the dead in a stand-up fight. So thankfully, they're going to do the bright thing. They're taking John's intel, and they're going to try to lure in the Night King and use Bran as bait, get him in close, and hopefully kill him and take out all the dead that he's created. So I'm glad. Oh, also, we got a fire moat. That was a big one for me. There's going to be a flaming moat around... Winterfell. So those scenes we've seen in the trailer of, of of firefighting might not be King's Landing. It just might be two different phases of the the battle for Winterfell. Big D, you mentioned Bran being used as bait in the Godswood. Learning what the Night King wants was critical, and they threw it at us very quickly. But we've had debates over what it is that he's coming south for, right? Is there a magical thing he's trying to acquire? Is it Cersei that he's after? Does he want to be on the throne? Does he want to just spread his cold from north to south? Is he just a force of nature that just happens? And Bran, I think, is credible here where he says, I'm the target. He wants to erase this world and I'm its memory. And Sam, of course, replies, that's what death is, isn't it? Forgetting. 
But knowing that Bran is the target changes our entire understanding of this war. And I'm glad that they held out, waited until now to tell us, but told us with enough time to understand the context of the next four episodes. So great timing on that. But I'm glad now I know what the hell this guy wants. And there's also the reveal that Bran doesn't know everything. Someone raises the question, can Dragonfire kill the Night King? And Bran's like, I don't know. They've never tried. So he doesn't have every answer. So they're, even though we're led to believe that Bran has seen much like Doctor Strange in the Avengers, he's seen every possible combination of outcomes. We know he hasn't. There's still some variables that he does not have a, a grasp on. So the ending is not as certain as everyone thinks. Watchers end in world characters. This episode really surprised me with the way I was defending certain scenes. Now, normally, you know me. If you told me there was a scene where the Hound and Beric Dondarrion are sitting on the ramparts with Arya and they're sharing some wine and <laughs> having a chat, and then Tyrion and Bran of Tarth and Jamie and Tormund Giant Spain and Sir Davos are all sitting around with Podrick singing songs <laughs> i'd be like fuck you i don't want to watch that garbage but this fireside chat and Tyrion's like mighty wine pour for podrick it was just fun enough without being a distraction we had the torment i guess fucking a giant's <laughs> wife or at least sleeping in the same bed as her and suckling at her teat uh, and then of course we had brand's nighting and i'm like oh god it's not cheesy please nobody say it's cheesy but I no. know that if you described it to me and I hadn't watched it myself, it'd be like cheesy. They walked that line. It, I mean, it was such a thin line between being just laughable and jumping the shark. When Arya and and uh, and it's Barak and it's the Hound and they're sitting there talking and she gets up and she's like, fuck you. I'm not spending my last night with you two old grumpy bastards. That was the audience. We're like, yes, go find something better. And the in-world characters are laughing at each other. And you hate, you hate Torment. You had to have liked him this episode. Is the big woman here? And then he's like, want to know why they call me Giant's Bane? You had to love him. Well, the key to it all was that everything that they did, even though it <laughs> might have been a bit of comic relief or lightheartedness, had importance to it, right? So when they're going through everybody's history and what battles they survived, it's reconnecting with that character. And Brienne's knighting was important because you had Jamie Lannister, a disgraced knight, the Kingslayer, knighting this woman in a rebirth of what knights should be after years in Westeros of knights failing their oaths and their calling. You've seen knights beat up Sansa. You've seen knights turn for power. And here you have, she is perhaps the purest definition of what a knight should be. It's like a, it's like a new day for Westeros if they can just survive this one night. I thought it was beautifully done. Yeah, and I think you can't understate the amount of respect that she has for Jamie. She has seen the change in him firsthand. He is not the man who pushed Bran out the window. So that's a big thing for her. She could have been knighted by someone else and it would not have had the impact. She can't even grasp the fact that Jamie's not talking shit to her. When he's not insulting her every other word, she thinks he has ulterior motives and she's trying to figure out what his plan is. And as the episode goes on, he says, I came back to serve under you. She's kind of thrown aback by the realization that Jamie has some feelings for her. We don't know if it's romantic or if it's just a respect as, as a warrior, 
that means a lot to her. And as her eyes are welling up, it was it was emotional. And you could have, can you imagine in the uh, on the script where it said, room breaks into slow clap and everyone is, that could have gone really wrong really quick. I actually could have done without that part. But, oh, come on. Um, there's also the moment in this episode where we have the Valyrian steel shuffle. Uh, so now Jon Snow has the Mormont Valyrian steel sword, but we see Samwell Tarly give Jorah the Tarly family sword, Heartsbane. I think this also was symbolic of Jorah's honor being restored. Uh, Jorah has been through a long, long arc. And if you remember, Jorah was condemned by Ned Stark himself. And that's what led to him being in exile and serving Daenerys. Now it has come full circle. He is back at Winterfell defending the castle of the man who condemned him. I think it's a, a wonderful story there. Jorah is a fantastic character. I've got him marked. I know I said that it's lame to do it, but that man is marked for death very yeah. soon. Yeah, you can't also forget the irony. What was he banished from Westeros for? Slavery. So he left banished for slavery, and he returned with the breaker of change, with Daenerys, who set the slaves free. So it, with a, a show that has multiple characters with great redemption arcs, we have a, a guy who paralyzed a child to hide the fact he was having sex with his sister, and now we're pulling for him. We're like, yeah, Jamie, we love you. You, know, you, you have Theon, who burned two farmer's boys to try to mask the fact that he couldn't find Rickon and Bran. And now we're like, yeah, Theon's back. How fucked up is the world? And how fucked up is this show that they've gotten us all spun around? It's great. And how fucked up is it that out of all these reunions, I was most excited about one special guest on the Rampart. I found myself, I was like, ghost, there's ghost. He didn't move. It could have been a stuffed ghost, but at least he was there. So we know he's in Winterfell. Yeah, I felt like Ghost was on a different set and they just superimposed him because he was kind (laughs) of... Looking up, kind of like my dog does when she's just bored in the backyard and she doesn't know I'm watching her. He's just kind of looking over here, looking over there. I'm like, ghost, get it together. Night King's coming. Like, let's go, man. <laughs> and speaking of the Night King, where the fuck is he? Now, I think HBO wants us to believe that the Night King is outside the walls of Winterfell with all of his lieutenants. But he is distinctly absent from this scene. We see the hoof. The camera pans up. We see the lieutenants. And we do not see the Night King. I think this lends some credence to all the theories going around that this isn't the only attack that's going to happen tonight. Yeah, and that's one of the things that in this question section, what do we want to know next episode or even research and find out this episode? I believe at one point the most we've ever seen on screen was 13 White Walkers. Then we've lost a few along the way. And I want to go back and recount them. I know we, you know, we lost the one that Sam killed. We lost the one that was killed by John and Hardhome. We lost the one also that the group going beyond the wall killed. So there are some that were lost. In a quick counting, because this is our Instacast, I thought I counted 11. So is there a chance that there are some additional White Walkers that we haven't seen? Some of Craster's, uh, you know, his children? It's a possibility that I don't think anybody's ever brought up. I went back and watched Hard Home this weekend, trying to convince Carrie Gross that this is a show worth watching. After she said she liked Black Summer, I was like, if you like Black Summer, you should check out Hard Home. Uh, but I was amazed by the sheer numbers of the Night King's army. You forget sometimes that they were, it was like a wave of bodies. And it's hard to believe that there are only, you know, a handful of these white walkers i wouldn't be surprised if there are far more than we imagined 
and John and, and the, the human leaders, they're basing their entire strategy on the premise that there's fewer white walkers that you would kill and then get the masses. If this large herd has been created by 30, 40 white walkers instead of the small handful that we believe, it's going to be much harder to find that Night King needle in that group. Not only do you have to now get, you know, kill more white walkers in one evening that have been killed in the last 10,000 years, you're going to have to do it in a small time frame while protecting a, a, a wheelchair-bound Bran in the Godswood out in the open with Theon and the Ironborn. So many things can go wrong here. One of the things we keep hearing in this episode is the crypts, the crypts, the crypts. If you're not fighting, you're going to be down in the crypts. The crypts are the safest place to be. They're definitely pointing us towards something going on in the crypts. And I wonder, like, how safe are the crypts? Aren't they filled with, you know, dead people? Yeah, but I think you need some meat on the bones. We haven't seen 100% skeletons. This isn't like Jason and the Argonauts or uh, Clash of the Titans. We're not getting all skeleton. You need some meat. But I'm taking the focus on the crypts to mean something different. Last season, we talked about how do you make the world of the living believe in this threat that they cannot see, the, the dead you know, coming south. So they took White in a box, brought him to King's Landing and said, hey, here's the threat. Daenerys says you're going to take when John brings up his heritage, he reveals who he is. She says, so you're going to take the word of your best friend and your brother. She needs proof of his heritage, of his lineage, so that she might be willing to step back. And there's been rumors, if you're a book reader or you followed this the season closely, I don't want to say it, but there is an item that could be in Lyanna's tomb that would prove John's heritage, a musical instrument. So we'll see if it's there. But that's what I think we're going to find in the crypts. All right, two smaller things that I wanted to get to uh, before we close out this Instacast. There was a very conspicuous scene with Sir Davos uh, pouring out food for everybody, saying, you're all soldiers now. And this little girl comes up. She says, my brothers were soldiers. Which way do I go? Do I go into the crypts with everybody or do I stay and fight? I don't know. And he says, you know, which way do you want to go? Now, she has a scarred face on the right side, much like Shireen, uh, Stannis Baratheon's daughter. And there's definitely a pause on this moment with her and i am at a loss for what the significance is there is it just reminding him is she an act of the lord of light like what are we supposed to see there and i would love to dive deeper into that no that was one of my least favorite parts i felt like that was trying to win the hearts and minds of the people you get the reluctant soldiers coming through and then this child i want to fight my brothers were warriors well, you go down the crypt and protect the children and women then. I was like, fuck no, come on, just get her down there. This isn't a time to build up a child's self-esteem. Get her down there. We didn't need to see it. There is no bigger. How many episodes we got left, Gene? Four. So you think there's going to be some big Lord of Light children subplot going on here in the crypts? When does that mix into the next episode? What's the matter, Big D? You afraid of too many strong women on this show? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Children. Yeah. She's going to get out there and she's going to start swinging a sword and turn the battle. Her and Leanna Mormont. Yeah. Oh, no, that she could fuck some shit up. I would have faith in her with a, with a sword. Now, this little child who's like, more porridge, sir. More porridge. 
<laughs> All right. What about Arya's secret weapon? We finally see it. Gendry's built it now. It's like he was just had it on hold. It's it's like when you're at your office and somebody stops by your desk and they're like, hey, did you finish that thing? You're like, oh, fuck. I told you I was going to do that shit. Got to do it right now. So you see her twirling the spear around. It's got obviously dragon glass on one end. Is that all it is? Just a twirly spear? Did you see anything special about it? No, it looked like it was. there was two ends. So it looked like one was a, a traditional steel. I don't believe it was Valerian steel. But that she'll be able to flip it around depending on the enemy. Ah, she's like the Witcher. Yeah, I think it's like a Swiss army knife of spears. You know, you can just mix and match depending on what you're fighting. Uh, also, Easter egg. I don't know if it's an Easter egg, but it is Easter. So uh, going back to the Gendry scene, the first time we see him in this episode where he's like forging dragonglass weapons, there is noticeable steam coming out from behind him. And he seems to be moving his arm in like a jerking motion. Please, somebody make the gif. Send it to us. Host at shadowntv.com. I like to make it my profile picture. <laughs> All right, Big D. Uh, that was a very productive half hour. We got our Instacast out. As a reminder, everybody, we'll be recording the deep dive tomorrow, putting that out on Tuesday. So going deeper into some of these ideas. Also, write into us your reactions to this Instacast. Host at shadowntv.com. We'd love to incorporate your ideas into the deep dive. Put us on the right path. If we made a mistake, correct us. If you've got an idea to add, let us know. That'll come out on Tuesday. And then be sure to get your letters in for the small council by Wednesday. The small council is our listener mail portion. We will read and sort through those, recording it Wednesday and putting that out Friday. Again, we're doing three episodes every week for your listening pleasure. And that concludes this week's episode of Shout on TV Game of Thrones edition. Be sure to follow us on social media and share with a friend. We're on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram at Shout on TV. On Facebook, just search for Shout on TV Podcast. The website is shoutontv.com. Our email address is hosts at shadowntv.com and where everywhere fine podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe. And if you stop by iTunes, please be sure to leave a review. That helps the podcast grow. Also, if you'd like to contribute financially to the podcast, uh, we're happy to take your dollars. Just go to shadowntv.com slash Amazon slash Venmo or slash PayPal, depending on the payment of your choice. And if you'd like to help us out with a sponsor, just go to shadowntv.com slash survey, fill out the survey, and that'll help us connect with sponsors you'd like to hear from. Also, be sure to check out our sister podcast, Shat the Movies, where we review the best of 80s and 90s movies. You can find all that at shatthemovies.com. On behalf of my co-host, Big D, Dick Ebert, and the King B, I'm Gene Lyons. Be sure to join us on Tuesday for the Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 2, Deep Dive. Deep Dive.